0: Hello. Welcome to Remember When. I'm your host, Carl Schulteis. UMGA TV is continuing this series as an oral history project of life and community of Upper Marion Township. In their own words, we want the people who live the history of the township to tell us about that history. This edition features Joe Bartlett. Joe tells us about moving to Upper Marion in the 1950s, along with his family stories and his, his career in Upper Marion Township. Let's sit back and listen to Joe, Remember When. Hi, Joe. Uh, really, hi. Really appreciate you coming by today. Glad to be here. So uh, we'll talk a little about uh, your experiences here in Upper Marion. I understand you weren't born here or raised here. Uh, where, where did you live before you came here?
1: We were, we were a Norbert people. Both my wife and I are from Norbert. We were born and raised there. We spent all of our lives down in the good old borough of Norbert, which is basically Lower Marion Township, if you want to look at it that way, surrounded by it. And we... Uh, we lived down there for the first couple years after we married then we came up here to the live in the Kingswood get ourselves started and finally brought her home up here we spent basically spent our whole life here in Upper Marion and uh, how
0: old were you when you came
1: How old when I, when I came here? Oh, I was probably getting probably
0: about 28, 29. 29. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, um, and um, what uh, made you decide to come out here? Well, we were just kind of looking
1: around. We really didn't care for um Our apartment was nice down in Norberth, we had an apartment down in Norberth, but at the time I was teaching at a technical high school up in Levittown, Fairless Hills area Lower Bucks County. Mm -hmm. So I had to commute on the turnpike every day to go to school. Well when your commuting trip on the turnpike starts in Norberth, that's one thing. When it starts out in King of Prussia, it's much better. So we moved out in this general direction mostly to help my commuting. Get me close to the turnpike right. so I can make it, make it simpler. And that's why we ended up out here.
0: Right. What, what year are we talking about?
1: Oh, that, was, that would have been probably been the uh, early 60s, mid-60s. Mm-hmm. What, uh,
0: what, was, what was King of Prussia like at that time?
1: Well, it was obviously quite, quite rural, uh, much more rural than uh, you can possibly imagine, because some of the roads that now make us a massive intersection were either dysfunctional or they weren't there at all. For example, the uh, Pennsylvania Turnpike, the toll booth stopped eight miles west of us, but the road continued into this area and then just kind of dissipated. There was no uh, the Schuylkill Expressway in the early 50s was only built as far as West Conshohocken. Period. There wasn't it just wasn't built past that. It took them a long time to build that section from West Conshohocken to Belmont Avenue, which is the next eastbound exit there. See. So it was, um, because of that, this area was, uh, it's just trying to be developed because the roads coming in here, they moved 23 and the, the uh, turnpike and the expressway were all suddenly coming together. So they started building houses here about as fast as the law would allow. Back in the um, early 60s, I can tell you, uh, eight or 10 different housing developments that were going on at the time And they were being built, um, and I'd say, uh, I'm close to this because when I was going through college, my summer job was that of a surveyor. Most of the summers I worked for the highway department. But my senior year I worked for a company called Yerkes, which is still around, surveyors. And I did an awful lot of surveying here in Upper Marion Township. I got to know the township really, really well. Because every time somebody wanted to build a house, when we had this big housing boom, (coughs) They would buy a piece of property, and decide, "I want the house put here, or there, or there." And then they would call upon us as surveyors to go in there, put in the corner pins, the boundaries of the property, and then put in the corner points for the house to repair it. I may have laid out my own house. I may have laid out your house, because I did. I did a lot of them in Cinnamon Hill, because Cinnamon Hill and Candlebrook and and Bob White. All these, not Bob White. They were coming a little bit later. All these high developments coming up, basically about the same time. So we were really, really busy, and I got to know Premier uh, King of Prussia really, really well from a development point of view. And of course, the shopping center wasn't there. It's hard to imagine the shopping center wasn't there. to say. in fact, one of my jobs, I actually laid out the property for the King of Prussia Plaza shopping center. They wanted us to put the corner pins in, and so forth, and. Um, and the reason that was because the whole concept of shopping center was non-existent when I was growing up. When I was growing up, and not just me, but everybody, if you wanted to go to a department store, you went down to Philadelphia. You got on the train and you went down to Wanamaker's or Gimbel Brothers or somebody down there. They did not have branch stores. And you bought your stuff there, they had their own delivery trucks, you deliver your stuff the following week. Then the Wanamaker's was the first to break through. They opened up a store in Winwood. That was the first and others began to follow and pretty soon uh, the development of the shopping center came along the one that really got us started around here was a company called EJ Corvettes Corvettes started in Delaware County and then they started out here they were the first store out here. Corvettes was rather interesting because they were following a pathway nobody had followed before. There was something going on those days called the Fair Trade Act or the Fair Trade Process I personally have a different name for it, I call it price fixing, which is what it was. That is to say, if I wanted to buy a certain brand of iron, okay, just to do some ironing, I could go to half a dozen or more stores and the price would be exactly the same in every store. There was agreed upon price, whatever it was, period. Corvettes came along and stopped that. Corvettes came along and started discounting made them really attractive because they would offer prices that nobody would offer. See. Well, they were the first store out there. And then, of course, other stores. With Corvette's attracting all of this business, other stores came in there. And then we have the development of the shopping center. The big ones came along. And, the, and that was a process wasn't just developing here in Upper Marion. But the whole concept of the department stores in Philadelphia, times were changing. Right. What, but,
0: what, what year are we talking about
1: now? Well, I said we're talking probably um, in terms of the major changes, probably in the um, in the early 60s is when the change began, yeah. you see. That's when it started.
0: And when you were doing the surveying, what uh, what year we what well, year that, we doing? Well, I, when
1: I was doing the surveying, most of my surveying was done in the 50s when I was in college. Right. See? And uh, that's when we were first starting to lay out the, uh, they had this idea about the King of Prussia Plaza shopping center, and they wanted to start, they were going to do something with the property. Somebody bought the property for amount of money, and they wanted to do something with it, and they talked about the shopping center concept was just starting to come along, see, it was still in its infancy, and so it was, uh, as I say, it's hard for us to look back and say, you mean to say that shopping centers were a, a creation of the piece, in fact, yes, that's right, they, are, they just weren't, uh, you know, they just weren't there, that's, that's. you went to the store, you went to the corner store, if you live in a small town, you live in, a, like I said, when we lived in Norbert, we would get on the train, fairly local. Down to Philadelphia, my mom would take us to gimbal's and Wanamaker's, and you know, all day long. <laughs> then you turn around and come back home. And the thing is this all the departments have had their own delivery trucks. So you can go down there and you can buy a whole truckload of stuff, and it'll be delivered to your home a day or two later uh, by their own truck. Because obviously, they had to do that. Because if we go down there and do a lot of shopping, who's going to get on the train, bring it home? You couldn't do it. See? So it was a it was a it was a different world, there's no question about it. It's a um, uh, the whole concept of shopping and you know what it was meaning to us, and what uh, you know. It's it's a um, the when the stores started coming out. They were very very popular. Let's say the first one came out to Winwood, and then further on up like Cheltenham, different places like that. They were also job mills. They suddenly created an awful lot of jobs for local kids, high school kids. You see. And I know my sisters both worked in wanamakers when we were living in Narbor, and they could, could walk to work. Great to have yeah. a job like that. Well they were going through college stuff like that. They walked to work, so it was uh, it was different. There's no question about that, and it was um, you know what I' would say it was better, and when I not saying it's better. I'm saying it was different to see. not
0: right. well, the United Parcel Service arise out of those different department stores having the, the delivery? I
1: don't time? know the big, I don't know the genesis of the UPS um, yeah. they might have, do you see mm-hmm. because obviously there was. The uh, process of, the redundant process of two or three trucks coming to my house in Narborth from three different stores to deliver two shirts and a pair of slacks, something like that. It wasn't economical for them at all, you see. Maybe they got together and formed UPS, I don't know. But that was, the, mm-hmm. at the time, they had their own trucks. Right. And not only that, they were set routes. In other words, if mom and I if we would get down and buy something on Saturday at Gimbel's, we knew they would come on Tuesday or yeah. Friday. They, maybe they would have two days, but they always deliver on those two days, that's it. There was never any, it wasn't like today where you can get it whenever it's available. Well, as I say, we have a number of uh, things that we were doing as far as uh, the surveying goes, the surveying of all of the different properties around here, you see, and the surveying along the highways and also um, when I was working, uh, before I started working for a private I worked for the highway department, right. and as I say, I helped to build the Schuylkill Expressway from um, when it was only completed back in the early 50s to West Gondjahawk, and I built, worked on the stretch from West Gondjahawk to Belmont Avenue down there in, near West Manayunk, which, which by the way is what Belmont Hills was called. Now it's called Belmont Hills, mm-hmm. but it was West Manayunk mm-hmm. then. They didn't yeah. like the name, so they changed it to Belmont <laughs> Hills. Mm-hmm. Well, anyhow, down there, when we were down there, if you go down the Expressway, you'll come near Gladwin, you will find out they had to make a substantial cut through the rock to get through there. You make a cut by blasting, that you can see the drill holes from the dynamite setting. And they created a new term in my vocabulary called fly rock. And fly rock was shards of rock that would go flying all over God's creation when they would do a blast to blow out the area. Well, we would be working in the area, doing our surveying, whatever, helping them. All of a sudden, a horn would go off in them. The horn was a warning. It was gonna be an explosion in, like three minutes, get ready, there'll be some fly rock, you know. Well, you, know, you don't want rocks falling in your so you jump in the truck, try to get away. But that was kind of like an occupational hazard, fly rock. <laughs> and that's the way it was. I think it was, uh, when I think of things like that today, I and mean, I think of all the ultra safety things they have in the workplace today, you see, I mean, that's one of the things that they would never have allowed. I mean, they would, I think in today's day what they would do is, doing it today, they would say, okay, You'll survey on Wednesday, but we're going to blast on Tuesday. You won't even be around when we blast, you see. It was such, it's a different, uh, you know, somewhat of a different environment. There were, uh, you know, there was, was another time when we were doing something called uh, topographical evaluation. It was done in, over here in part of the plaza. To get a, um, one of the surveys, to uh, survey a property, you want to know the contours of the land, whether there's hills and valleys and things like that. It's not just flat football fields. Uh, and uh, so we would go out there and we would have special instruments which we would use Just to, and somebody would carry a level rod around. A level rod was about a 17 foot high yardstick, you might say. And you would put it here and you would take a reading, and you put it here and take a reading. And that, way, that way the person, you could see how the, uh, as you are reading up and how the, the contour of the land was changing. See. Well, this one day my, our boss said to us, we are behind, we must get this particular field done." Today, period, no excuses, right? Well, that doesn't sound like a pretty big deal. There was one problem. There was me and the gentleman who was using the level, which is called actually called a stadium, and I have the rod and I have to go all over the place. There was one other being in the field, and it's called a bull. <laughs> it was a bull in the field. Because this, don't forget, King of Prussia at the time was basically farmland, and the bull was watching us. And I'm watching the bull, you see what I mean? <laughs> and uh, he came after me once. Fortunately, I was very agile, more agile than I am today. There was a fence. Well, you never saw a man go over a fence so fast in your life, see what I mean? I left the rod behind. And it was a bull. But it was such a dumb situation. Actually, I'd be out there doing surveying in a field with a bull, you see. And a uh, person who was higher up in charge who just wanted to get the job done, period, they're behind, he kept saying, that bull's not a problem to worry about the bull, see. Well, it's not the case. So when you're talking about occupational hazards, you figure, you know, you're talking about surveys, you look at a guy and you see him well with a, looks like he's looking to a telescope, which is really what he is, or he's holding a rod like this, or he has a tape and a chain, you see. Uh, he's, um, uh, there's more to it than that. Yeah. You know, you have, uh, you know, bulls uh, running uh, rampant, you see, and it's a, uh, I have, um, not in this exact vicinity, but not far by, we had a, uh, I think I would mentioned this to you, we had the interesting situation where we were doing, working out on Route 29 and we were doing what they call a topographical evaluation, here's the roadway, they wanted to know the hills or valleys on either side of the roadway because they were planning on widening the road and they wanted to have contour maps so they could make their plans. So you go out and survey, every 100 feet you would go into the woods and take readings and stuff like that and this one area was full of bees. And uh, no exaggeration, they should never have allowed this. I got stung on the average of at least once a day in there, because because there are just bees, bees nests. you see? We had to go into the woods. woods. We couldn't say, oh well, we'll go around. No, no. When you're a surveyor, I want the measurement at that spot. You're saying there, you have to go in there and take it. And uh, so finally, we got special gear to protect ourselves. But I remember one time going in there and you chop away so you can hold the rod up and stuff like that and hit right into a big bee's nest and we had set up this special sh- storm through all weather suits we had. We had a mosquito netting in front, see. And that we, we were protected. We weren't getting stung at that point, see? however, it's very disconcerting when you are doing your work and there's four bees crawling around the mosquito netting and you're going through the woods and you say to yourself, well, what would happen if I fell? <laughs> see? And, you know, it was not a very comfortable, because these were not honeybees, these were hornets. There was, uh, you know, some serious, uh, fortunately, some people react very strongly to bee stings. Let's see, a formic acid gets into them and, troom, that's it. Well, uh, fortunately, none of us had that particular problem. But there was a standard operating procedure out there. This was Longwood 29, and the Pickering Creek runs alongside the stretch we mm. were. When you get stung, right to the creek for mud, you put mud on it right away to help. It, you know, kind of a situation which, really, we shouldn't have done that. That is, certain, something else should have been done because, well, people didn't react as beastly. So at least they didn't know. But I don't know. Your workers getting stung a lot during the day, it's not a good thing. I don't care how you spell it out. See what I mean? But again, there was a level of ignorance at all levels, not intentional, not just both at manage the management level. Oh, we've always done it that way. God save us, that's not a reason, that's an excuse, you see. <laughs> <laughs> there was quite a difference here, right. so there was a, but there was, there was one nice thing about serving for the Highway Department. The Highway Department's region here is, I think it's called Region 3, and it encompasses the five-county southeast Pennsylvania area. So as a result, I might have been asked to go into, we might have been sent out to work at any, any location in the five-county area fix this road here, look at that road there, gonna put a new road here, do you see? In some cases, we uh, uh, actually cut through cornfields, gonna put a new road here, there's just no other, uh, you know. So first thing you have to do is to, uh, you know, it's uh, one other interesting measurement which I made. (laughs) You can think about this. There's a bridge in Philadelphia across the Schuylkill River. It's called, it's at Girard Point. Uh, it's called the Platte Street Bridge I think now, it used right. to be Penrose Avenue Bridge. It's a bridge across, it leads over to the airport, see. How it was completed in the early 50s. Once you complete a big job like that, they have what they call a post construction survey. Basically you go in there and see what these guys build it right, you know, you take measurements, you take levels and so forth. This seems kind of silly but as you might expect this particular bridge like all of them, it's supported by massive concrete supports and stuff like that, see. And of course, some of them were obviously built into the river, and the river is, you know, maybe not so solid as they would like it to be. We were standing there to do one thing: see if the bridge is sinking. We had to go in there with our level rods to go out there and go out there and put our rods right on the concrete footings. There, are they where they should be, or are they going down? <laughs> It just seems kind of a funny thing in a way. In a way, we built this bridge, you know, people are using it. There they go. You see, it's a mile long, stuff like that. Uh, let's check to make sure it's not sinking. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking to myself, there's just something about this equation that doesn't add up in my mind. We did it, and I'm glad to say it wasn't sinking. We didn't really think it had, to, you know, there was a um, uh, just some unusual, unusual things mm. that were uh, occurring in... Of course, that time period in the early 50s was a different time period in our country because the war had just ended a few years before that. And when, during the war, nothing was happening, you know, they didn't even build new cars. Nothing was happening because all the men were over fighting in the war. So when they come home, all of a sudden, you have this tremendous amount of people. Number one, they need jobs and they won't work. Number two, they got to live somewhere. So places like Levittown and Fairless Hills, they just jump up out of the ground because they have, uh, you know, have these uh, no money down. Uh, Guaranteed, sir, a serviceman was entitled to buy a house. No money down. Just here. Here it is. Because the uh, government was helping to back them there. See, well, that caused an awful, awful lot of construction. You know, needless to say, a lot of jobs being built. It was, it was an area of great activity, you see, both uh, uh, from an employment point of view and other activities. Mm-hmm. And people are basically also getting their lives back together. That is to say, it's, you know, families that have been split up because of, Husband was off fighting the war, son was off fighting the war. Right. It was a different, uh, a different world than we, uh, we think of now. Say. Well, of course, the savings things in those days during the war were saving stamps. Right. Say, where they wanted you to buy saving stamps, which is basically so you could buy war bonds. And you could pay, I remember the, the most common one was a $25 one, Right. where you would buy $17.50 worth of saving stamps, you see over a period of time, how much money you had, and then set that aside, and in some number of years it was worth $25. That was the way they were financing the war, you see. And uh, you know, it was, a, it was a big thing, and I guess it was very, very nice, and when I was a young kid I didn't appreciate it that much because my birthday would come along and my father would say, well here's your present, he would open up a box, he would be a strip of savings stamps. <laughs> <laughs> that just didn't really. <laughs> do it for me a whole lot, um, you know. But again, that was, it's hard to look back on times like that and view them. You can't view it during times like that to today's eyes because it's a different world entirely. It's just such a, it's uh, a totally different world and I think in many ways it's better and in many ways it's not better, I see. I mean, it's, um, well, that's a, uh, in this area up here I, I remember very, very clearly the, uh how busy we were and I remember one thing happened when I lived up here in the Kingswood Apartments. This is interesting. I love to go fishing. Well there's a creek that runs through Upper marine People don't know it's there. It goes underground underneath the entire parking lot of the King of Prussia Plaza. It enters up near Route 23 and 202 into a tunnel they built there. It was a creek and it comes out by the firehouse because most people it's a half mile away. They built a tunnel so they could then have the parking lot for the shopping center over top of this. Well, when I first moved up here, they didn't have that. That was a nice creek. It was also full of minnows. Minnows are a great fish bait. So I used to go down there and catch a bunch of minnows, and then take them and go fishing the next day. Well, this one Friday evening, I decided, okay, I'm going to just go uh, bass fishing on Perkiomen Creek tomorrow. I'm going to go and get myself some minnows. So I went down there. This creek ran behind the American Bank, and it was on the surface. It was. Full of minnows. I had no trouble getting the minnows, and I will put them in a minnow bucket, which is a bucket within a bucket. You take the inside out and it's full of holes and you can just stick that in the creek with the minnows in it and water continuously runs through them so they stay nice and happy, you know, in that nice fresh water. So I did this this one Friday night and stuck the minnow bucket in the creek there, you see what I mean? tied it up with a small little string there, and said, okay, I'll be here in the morning to go fishing. Well, I went home that night, and the skies opened up. And Around two o'clock in the morning, we had this enormous thunderstorm. I thought, oh, jeez. And rain, rain, I knew what was gonna happen. That creek is gonna jump up, you know, about five feet. Sure enough, when I went ahead to go fishing the next morning, my minnow bucket is gone. I said, okay, it obviously got washed down. Well, maybe it got caught on a branch. So I went down there. Followed it down some distance, and then I came to a very large pool. This had been a creek as wide as this, very large pool. Uh, okay, I guess my metal bucket is down there in the bottom well, of the pool. <clears throat> so what I'll do is I'll go back and get my fly rod, which is a nine-foot fishing rod, and I put on a, a, a lure that had a bunch of big hooks on it. You know, I'm going to try to cook the minnow bucket out of handle with the right, wire. Right. I'm going to try to. Get, well, I went down to make a long story short my fly rod is nine feet long, I never touched bottom. Never touched bottom. bottom. That's how deep this hole. (laughs) I walk up to the sinkholes of the Upper Marion Township. In fact, uh, historically speaking, we can say, my middle bucket is still down (laughs) in that hole. (laughs) Needless to say, I never got it back. That was classic characteristic of, uh, not characteristic, but that was evidence of the sinkholes. You know, um, Upper Marion Township sits on limestone limestone is calcium carbonate. Uh, acid rain does not like calcium carbonate. And to give you a frame of reference, tums comes from the tummy to neutralize and acid right. are also calcium carbonate. Right. Right. So we, we know the carbonate does react with the acid. So as a result you go know, all sorts of places in upper marine towns or maybe there was a solution channel made here and who knows where. the sinkholes are going to show up. They have shown like, up in a lot of different places. We know this and they still do, do you see. And uh, it's fascinating to think about what's underneath upper marine tension because at that time they would like to know where these channels went. You see, they, they can get really involved. If you've ever been to Crystal Cave, Crystal Cave is made out of limestone, you see. Right. It's just washed over the years. So what they did was they took a very concentrated intense red dye and they put it in the water where this, what I told you about, was actually disappearing into the ground again. They put it in there and they put the word out to the towns all around South southeast. If you see any evidence of red dye in your river, would you please tell us so we can kind of get some picture, right? They only got one report back about somebody saw the dye. It was in the water supply of Hatboro.
0: Hatboro?
1: Hatboro. Now, if you could stop for a moment and think about it. Upper Marine is here, Hatboro is there. This thing here is called the Schuylkill River. It lies between us. Right. You see, but there are underwater aquifers that allow this stuff to get over there, and they picked it up over there in Hatboro. Mm-hmm. Say. I mean, it wasn't hazardous for them. I mean, it, was, it was a coloring, say, food, 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 uh, food coloring. I think. Well, you got to say to yourself, if that's where it went, you see, I mean, an underground aquifer. You see, what else is going on in our township? You see, in terms of where is the water going and so forth and nobody really knows. They just had some ideas there. They have a, um, uh, there are aquifers that do go into the river. We don't think about this. You just assume everything going this way is going to go into the river. Aquifers that go actually below the river. One of the most obvious ones, It's kind of wish it didn't, is down at Tyson's. Tyson's is a super fun site in yeah, Upper Marine Township where a lot of really bad stuff was dumped by Sivagagi, they bought it up from Tom's River, New Jersey, and dumped it in these old limestone quarries there for years. Anyhow, it really was terrible stuff and polluted the river and stuff like that. That made it a super fun site. Well, here is the Tuchel River. Here is Tyson's, all right, mm, right, right. And over here is Norristown. They were, had to go over to Norristown and pull it out of wells. It went underneath the river across because there was a different aquifer. Aquifer is just, just aquifer like an underground pipe, you want to come for lack of a better term, and some of this stuff was able to go into. Obviously, much of it went into the river, go down the river and boom, right. but the aquifer went underneath the river and over to Norristown, and for quite a while there, they were actually going over to Norristown, and they were dropping. Um, they dug some wells over in Norristown, drilled some wells and put pipes in, and started sucking the stuff out yeah. for quite a while to try to uh, because as I say, the stuff was. Bad stuff. It was very carcinogenic and things like that. It was, uh, but it gives you an idea where water can go. You know, I think it's always, it's 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 going to go downhill. Right. I accept that. See, but the pathway downhill is not always as straightforward as you might think, think it could be. And I think the, uh, um, as I say, the the evidence we found of sinkholes and of uh, channels and things like that. And there are still, I'm sure, some ones that will pop up now and then. They, once in a while something happens in upper marine township. Mm. Can't be too surprised because, as I say, it's a limestone area and limestone will slowly dissolve in right. water, you see. And at the, uh, when the, the rain is acid rain, which we have more acid rain now than we used to, it's going to dissolve even mm. more readily. Um, I don't know that it's, it's much of a problem potentially today in up marine because of the fact that we are so developed I mean most of our rainwater goes down the gutter and down the steward and bothers somebody else. It's not so much falling on our...
0: It saturates the ground.
1: Well, that's that's um, that's what the equation says anyhow, you see mm. what I mean, it's not a um, uh, but I think the uh, the times in those days were needless to say quite a bit different, you see. Mm. Some of the roads that I think about um, that <laughs> road It's unbelievably hazardous. They find it. the intersection of Henderson Road and Valley Forge Road.
0: Right.
1: As you come down Henderson, now to Valley Forge Road, you come up a slope and you stop at the light there, right? right? Okay. Well, before they rearranged and rebuilt that intersection, it was like this. There was literally a 45-degree angle leading up to the intersection, and not only that, but the road itself was only two lanes. You see, they made Henderson Road. Much wider back in the 50s and early, early 60s. Excuse me, Henderson Road now I think has a 52-foot cartway, but in those days it was not 52 feet. It wasn't anything close to it. But it was a. Um, uh, but that intersection there was really, really terrible. And needless to say, in the wintertime you couldn't do a thing. I mean, if there was one piece of ice there, nobody went anywhere. You see. Another thing that happened further down Henderson Road when I first moved up here it was really great. The dairy farm was very active. The dairy farm. And uh, everybody loved the dairy farm for two reasons. First, we had nice fresh milk. It was also cheaper. I say cheaper. In those days, (laughs) you're talking about price fixing, what a world they lived (laughs) in. In those days, the price of milk was set by a milk board in Pennsylvania. And if you went into the ACME or the AMP or anybody and you picked up a quart of milk, the price was always the same. They determined the price, do you see? In fact, at that time, the store wasn't even allowed to sell gallon containers of milk. The biggest container of milk you could buy in the AMP was a half gallon. You couldn't buy a gallon container. And the price was set by the milk control board in Harrisburg. Unless, the milk you sold was raised on your property. <coughs> Excuse me. So Norview Farms had 63 cows at one time. They milked every day and they made a lot of milk, And a lot of it they shipped out obviously. They bottled their own milk in gallon jugs and sold it for 99 cents or whatever they wanted to. They were not af- under the influence effect of the Harrisburg pricing because they were doing just like I said they were making the milk their cows and they were selling it on their spot they can charge whatever they want so needless to say with this farm selling nice fresh milk at a lower price than anybody else in gallon containers too they did a tremendous business Mm -hmm. and uh, well as I say you know, sixty-three cows is a lot of cows. <laughs> yeah. And not only that, they had to milk them every day. They had a they had at least one, maybe two uh, farmhands. They had to, because they yeah, said
0: sixty-three cows. I guess so.
1: Yeah. I mean, was, they were all milk, milking machines and stuff like that, but still, there are certain things. And that you could, you, we could always get down there and watch them, which we did. That uh, place, you couldn't. you could, watch watching, stand here and you watch the cows come in here. Cows and right where to go, and then they they show them hooking up the machines to let me know, and then you can see the. Clear glass piping. You can see the milk going over here to where they were going to work on it, sterilize whatever they do. You see that was, but uh, well, that was uh, everybody bought their milk down there. So everybody did, and then uh, the, uh, the rules started to change. It's uh, so silly to think about a time when you couldn't sell milk in a gallon container in a store. I mean, is anybody paying attention? Where do these rules come from? See, well, again, I keep coming back to the euphemism, and I keep using it. Really, it's not a euphemism at all. It's a fact of life. It's called price fixing, you see. Somebody had an interest in price fixing. Another thing too that went on those days, um, when I was growing up and to some extent when I, even when I got up here, awful lot of people, when I was growing up, everybody had their milk delivered. It was rare that you went to the ACME or A&P and bought a, a quart of milk. Had your milk delivered to your house, you see, every, every other day, something like that, Say, It was still in effect up there for a while. Uh, I don't know how long it was up there, but it was a convenient thing. And it was, um, people liked the idea because the milkman, which is what he was called, besides selling milk and cream, would sell um, eggs and, um, well he would sell cream too, eggs and one other thing, I forget what it was, you see. And if you wanted them, you simply put up. and by the way, it was all returnable containers. Glass bottles that they picked up, you blah 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 blah, and if you wanted the eggs, you just left a little note out there. Leave, give me eggs, you see. So it was a very convenient thing for people to, uh, you know, uh, that was uh, that was a different world too. That was, uh, you know, that was a uh, the milkman was. So you know, looking back at those things, and you ask yourself sometimes, well, why? Why was the world like this, where we just? Dumb? Or were we just learning, or we're we just growing up, you see. It's probably a combination of, of all things, see. and, and they, uh, Well, we've always done it that way, you see. We've always done it that way. People have had a tendency to be very— I think people were much more pragmatic in those days. I think the effect of the war, see, This is the way it is. You just have to do it. This is, this is what we have to do, see. So it's always a— um, I think that um, when I think about that and I think about places like Valley Forge you say on the what the property in Valley Forge is like, what it's like now. What's what well, went on in Valley Forge? There was a company whose property was within Valley Forge Park. Mm-hmm. It was the Keene Asbestos Company. I think it was Keene. I'm not sure. They dealt with asbestos. Now, they owned the property, but it was surrounded by Valley Forge Park property. You see. I don't have to tell you what asbestos is. It's a very bad actor, I say. And they, not only that, they got their products. They made stuff there out of asbestos, you see. And they shipped it out. They had a rail line running from where they're located in the um, middle of the Valley Forge Park down to the, where the current trains, th- northern mm. southern place is now, see. And all along that roadway, there was asbestos spilled. You see, up and down, you know, sloppiness and stuff like that, you see. Well, now they found asbestos is, well, I don't know you'll call it a class A carcinogen, but it's a, um, it's a very dangerous material when it's friable. By friable, not spelled the way you normally think. F-R-I-A-B-L-E. Friable means they, it's in the air. It right. so can get in the air. You breathe it, you're in trouble. Rubbing it on your hand, not a problem. So you breathe it into your body, of course it makes micro cuts in your lungs, and over the years you make get a whole ton of them and they can eventually become cancerous. You see, well, Right there in the middle, of surrounded by the park, you have this asbestos. Now Valley Forge Park is faced with an enormous cleanup problem because an awful lot of the asbestos waste, do you see, got spread throughout the park because there was waste in the asbestos right. manufacturing process. And The plan is, I can't imagine this, the plan is to take about this much surface soil off the ground in much of Valley Forge Park, truck it away, you see, maybe replace it. The asbestos is there. The asbestos that fell in there 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, you see, isn't going to go anywhere. Asbestos is very chemically unreactive. I mean, it, you can hit it with acid, you can hit it with benzene, you can't it with. You, you can even burn it. See. <laughs> if it falls, it's there, see. And Valley Forge does have a, um, I'm not sure if Valley Forge Park was to a superfund site or not. It might have been, you see. It's going to be cleaned up, yeah. you see. and it's going to be an expensive trip. And when they get it started, you see, um, that, there's a second question which comes up. I don't know if they have the answer to this or not. I suppose they do. If you're going to scrape off a few inches of asbestos-laden soil from all over the park, where are you going to put it?
0: Right, that's the question. Well, that's that's the point. It has
1: to go somewhere. So that as long as it's uh, and as I say, we've had asbestos problems. We do have other asbestos problems that are rather interesting too. Down up off of um, um, oh the road that the Trout Run Sewer Plant is on, Mansell Road. Right, Manson. On up and. If you go on up there, as you get towards the top, on the left-hand side is a very large area that is undeveloped, right? And there's a company that has talked about putting in, possibly putting in, some high-rise apartment buildings there. Well, that area used to be used by a refractories company. Refractories company is a company that makes fire brick and things for insides of furnaces and things like that. Asbestos is a major ingredient in these fire bricks. They were made up there, refractories. Well, as you might understand, whenever you're making something out of asbestos or anything, you're going to have some breakage and some useless stuff, right. so they would simply push it aside and dump it there, see. The bottom line is this. There's a field up there where underneath there's all kinds of asbestos and there is concerns coming up about the fact that if I'm going to build a six or eight or ten story building, I've got to have dig down and have firm steel and concrete foundations for it, right? Right. Well, you dig down in there, you're gonna hit asbestos. Asbestos. I had read one report where at one point there's asbestos like 15 feet thick from an old, it it was one of the dumps that this company used just to put the waste asbestos there. So they've got a problem up there, you see, and that is that the asbestos is there, if they're going to go in there and try to build, it has to be done under very strict controls, do you see, now right. um, everybody, the easiest control on asbestos is water. If you keep it wet, it's not going to get into the air so it's not going to bother right. you. It does not dissolve in water. You put water on, it's not going to wash right. away, see what I mean. By keeping it wet, you can't put it under control, see. But whether well, they can build and dig and go in there with all these big machinery and dig the holes for the foundation of these buildings or not, uh, it's it's going to be an interesting adventure for them. So it's going to be a uh, we wouldn't think as you know where we live now we have two significant asbestos problems: the one I just told you about and the one in Valley Forge Park. So you wouldn't think you know an area like this is um, it's a uh, and not only that it doesn't stay right there. The place I told you about for the asbestos company that was surrounded by Dry Forest property, there was a, not a stream, but it was a drainage ditch, you see. Mm-hmm. That came out of there drained a large area. Whenever it rained, there was, it was like a creek, you see. Went right down there underneath to the Schuylkill River, see. Needless to say, all along that is asbestos, you see, in the ground. And where this ditch joins the Schuylkill River, right, when they were making improvements to that, um, remember the, second, the old singing bridge right. was across the Schuylkill? Right. Well, they wanted to repair that and get in there and make that thing, you know, safer, better. It's a walking right. bridge now. I think. The Okay. is okay. Well, in order to do that, they needed to reinforce foundations, right? Right. But they had to, and they guess they did, but they had to go through a lot of, of zigging and zagging because the mud and the muck upon which it rested was filled of asbestos. It had washed down yeah. from this asbestos company over the years, and it was full of hmm. asbestos. Right. Well, as long as it stayed in the mud and muck, nobody really cared about yeah. it, I mean? wasn't a problem. If I got it on my hand, nobody really cared about it, see. Well, it's a, um, so there are some hidden hidden things. There's also some other things in Upper Marine Township, which people don't want to talk about. We have about, I can't say the exact number, but probably at least four Superfund sites that I'm aware of, you see. But I, I've worked at most of them, you see. And uh, of course, the Tysons one and the Crater Superfund site over there on Horizon Boulevard and stuff like that, those are the, the major ones. But there's a couple of smaller ones, you see. There's one uh, where uh, Solvents, one down in Queen Lane, you see. And uh, there's uh, a couple others that are fairly close, um, and these are areas that have the status of the Superfund sites. There's about four or five designations. In a perfect world, we'd be able to say clean up. It was cleaned up, In most cases, it's very hard to clean it up. It has been remediated is the most common term. Remediated means they have done certain things so that the contaminants there that are potentially dangerous won't bother anybody. We'd either lock them in place, do you see? Well, we have surrounded them with some sort of a buffer thing, or, and this is more common than we would like to think, called pump and treat. That is to say, these hazardous materials get into the groundwater. You see, and as it percolates beneath the surface, right. not not surface water, groundwater. Uh, we pump and treat. We pump this water out from wells. We treat it. We remove the right. bad chemicals from it, and then we uh, let it go back into the wherever it's not going to do any right. problem. So you see, well, okay, well pump and treat's fine. How long will pump and treat have to go on? Well, who knows? Uh, in the case up along the Schuylkill Expressway there, there's a couple of places where there's a lot of chlorinated solvents. Now chlorinated solvents are organic solvents that contain chlorine, see, and chloroform and carbon, tetrachloride, and things mm-hmm. like that. And I never met a chlorinated hydrocarbon I like yet, see. <laughs> As a group, they are all, seriously, they are all carcinogenic, right. you see, mm-hmm. as a group, they're really, really bad actors. And there are some sources of them up along the um, Schuylkill Expressway, you see. Uh, there were old dumps. I'm not going to say who, whose landfill they were, but I'll just let it go. There was stuff dumped there shouldn't have been dumped in there. Now, it's finding its way down, as it will, do, and it's being removed on the pump and treat system, right. down close to the turnpike there, see. How long will that take to go on? I don't really know. Nobody knows because they don't know how much is there, see? And they don't know how long they're gonna to have to do it. Another thing, too, is this they're just trying to find out in some cases more about the hazards of these materials. That is to say, if you get exposed to 10 parts per million each day, are you safe? But if you get exposed at 15, you're going to be dead by Friday. No, it's they do not know they're finding, as they find more and more about it, they basically go back and say, whoa, we've got to be more careful about this. And they, they set standards that are sometimes hard to meet, you see, right. or else unknown standards. Simply say, right. stay away from it, see what I mean? I think that that's a, um, uh, and again, the, the standards are kind of, uh, a kind of interesting. Uh, it has nothing to do with this area except they bought something here. Several years ago, I bought something which I still don't believe I bought. It was some kind of cement that I used to uh, drain from a downstairs, and I have a ground level of my house, I have a drain from a laundry tub into the ground there, and uh, the cement had cracked around there, so I put a, a cement sealer you could put around there to seal it up. I bought it and put it on there, blah, blah, blah. Well, I am a label reader because I have a chemical background. I am a label reader. Caution. <laughs> this material has been found to cause cancer in California. Well, everybody says, thank God I don't live in California, see what I
0: mean?
1: (laughs) I never, I never, that is such, that was on there, that that was the, that was such a, a dumb statement, you see, what it's supposed to mean. Well, I think it was because the company did not want to have to say, this is carcinogenic. They'll simply say, okay, well, they found it was cancer, blah, 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 blah. As, it's amazing, see you find out more and more things that are potentially a problem you see? Right. Sometimes people may try to hide them, sometimes they may not try to hide them. Some of the things that they um, I forget which solvent it was, but it could have been benzene I'm not sure or toluene. one of the organic aromatic organic solvents that is right. known to be cancer right. used to be used as a solvent in nail polish
0: uh-huh.
1: yeah. and not only that I think they knew about this the hazards for a while And they shouldn't look at this if I have a hazardous solvent on the nail polish two things are happening I put it on here undoubtedly some of it will hit my skin right. be absorbed through the skin right. the rest of it will evaporate right. and I'll breathe it in see what I mean? Right. I mean I think oh my god something as harmless as that you see what I mean? <clears throat> right. it's not as harmless now that's, that's been several years back that they and I think they stopped using that material, that was been quite a while back, they, they stopped using that material. I, I think that's, uh, and again, these things we're talking about now, this is not an Upper Marian thing or right. a King of Prussia. This is things that, uh, what happens over there happens over here, there's no question about that. It's a, um, I have a, uh, I have concern about the development of King of Prussia myself. There are about 500 acres of property that are not developed in Upper Marine. Right. That's not very much. No. About 500 acres. So two things are going to happen. Some of those 500 are going to be developed, like the golf course right. is being developed now, you see. I have a feeling, this is what we have to watch carefully, some of the other areas that are already developed may be developed in a different way. Somebody may come along and say, oh, there's a nice house here, I would like to build a duplex. see, Two structures, in other words, right. the possibility of trying to crowd it in, do you see? So we have to watch our zoning carefully to make sure that that's not an abuse. Because this is, a, this is a, right now, it's a town of single family homes, as you well know. You and I think it's nice to, try to keep it this way. If people start doubling, do you see? Or trying to increase the size of their property, that our their house they can maybe turn into a, they can rent the other half out to somebody else. It obviously, creates a different environment in our right. in our um, communities, and we would like to see. You see, it's a. Um, at the same time, of course, it increases the number of children would have to be educated and stuff like that. You see, the whole whole nature of things would change. You see. So, as I say, with very little land left to be developed, you see, developers may come in and say, okay, well, I want to do this here, see, and, well, some people would view things from the shallow end and say, okay, we will let you do that, because then we'll get more tax money out of your property. Mm -hmm. Well, if that's your purpose in life, I suppose that's a good thing. But for the other things, it's not, um, you know, when I think about, um, you know, it's, uh, well, as I say, it has come a long, long way. When my first exposure to King of Prussia was interesting, it was not when I was just a surveyor. even before. When I was a kid, we lived in Norbert, right? Mm-hmm. We were very energetic. We would bike to Valley Forge Park. Some friends. Right. A bicycle to Valley Forge Park. Now, fortunately, there was Montgomery Avenue runs through Lower Marine and St. Right. one continuous road. Right. Now it's called Gulf Road and stuff like that. We would go there and we would spend just a long day biking. We were just so full of energy, blah, blah, blah. Well, anyhow, there were two things where we would like to stop on the way. You know where the Hanging Rock is? Right. Okay. There was a faucet there, spigot. You could drink the water. It, had a, yeah. it was a spring there. Right. You could drink the water. We would always start, fill up our canteens there with water. But that has stopped years ago because, unfortunately, that water got contaminated. Now it's no longer a, a, a place you can you to drink the water. You can't. Does it even took, run now? I don't think it does run, no. I looked at it, I don't think it does run at all. I think the, um, uh, the other side of the coin is, ne- next thing was, used to be, this is a word a lot of people wouldn't realize. You go a little further past there and enter into King of Prussia at the intersection of Henderson Road and uh, Gulf Road on Montgomery Avenue, whichever you want to call right. It was an ESSO station, Schultz's. Yeah. Schultz's. Shorty Schultz's father's station. There. It was ESSO. It wasn't Exxon. Right. They didn't change the name of Exxon until um, you know, several years later when they became, ESSO became Exxon. Yeah. But that was the place you headed for because they had sodas. A big refrigerator full of ice, ice cold sodas, you see. So that was the main thing. When you're going to take a data Valley Forge,
0: sure you show you how to. Dime for the <laughs> <laughs> Getting back to that that spring you were talking about, I can remember people lined up there parking their cars and going over there with uh, with uh, bottles to get, oh, yeah. to, to, to drink, now, to get the water. I did you mentioned
1: that does kind of ring a, a familiar bell, that does seem, yes, and it's a shame, as I say, the upgrade portion just got contaminated somehow, and so they don't want that, uh, hmm. they don't trust it anymore, see, yeah. so they don't, uh, I don't know what contamination caused that to go, yeah, that was a, uh, a popular spot because I say, well, it was a source of fresh water. See wherever you are going along there, and as I say, there was a um, uh, people riding more bikes or doing more walking mm-hmm. and things like that. You see, there were there were not as many cars right. on the road because it was a you know holdover from the um, war. Right. They didn't make any. You see, everybody had old cars and things like that, you see, and I think the uh, the times that have changed quite a bit as I say, they obviously have changed dramatically. You know, are they yeah. The better or the worse, it's not a question, it's not a better or worse situation, it's a different environment, you see, and you can't evaluate, you know, it's right. um, kinda like, uh, when I was growing up, if we had some things then, we have now, you see, how much different would our lives be, you see? You know, how much different would they be? I think to myself how much smarter I would be when I'm going through college. And when you major in chemistry, you spend half your life doing chemical problems and the other half trying to figure out what you did wrong, see? (laughs) Slide Uh rule. If I'd had a pocket calculator, which did not exist in those days, and a word processor, which did not exist in those days, I think I would have learned twice as much. Right. Because in my word processor, for example, when you were taking English and the teacher says there's a book report, you know, no typing mistakes, you've got to be typed, no typing mistakes. And you've made a typing mistake, it costs you and stuff. Like, well, of course with the word processor, that's out the window, you know, type mistakes, write it out. Oh, what a word processor would have done for my life in those <laughs> days, because you know, I, uh, uh, I used to um, uh, I used to use a Columbus system for typing. you ever yeah. used that Columbus system for typing?
0: No, I don't say that I can.
1: Oh, you find a key and land on it. Oh. <laughs> 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 okay. Okay. <laughs> and that's, that is, I was not a typist. Right. So I would have to do typing up for, for a book report for an English class, and oh, jeez. <laughs> they don't want erasers or anything like that. And they did not have correction fluid no. in those days. See? So you think back to those days that she was if I had a pocket calculator and a word processor, mm-hmm. see what I mean, I would, I would either have learned a lot more, or I would have learned what I learned in half the time, <laughs> see, because uh, I became very, very good at side role, see what I mean, right? You know, but that's like being some saying I became very good with a pitchfork. I worked on the farm. You <laughs> know, I mean, that's not a it's something that goes by the board. So right. that's a, um, and I think that things are different. Um, uh, when I think of the Upper Marion Township and all around the things that we have today, that we didn't just didn't have, the world has changed. Is uh, there were no convenience stores yeah. growing up. There were no Wawa's or Seven Elevens or things like that. You see,
0: yeah. it just yeah. worked. not Just went.
1: And you know, it was you. You bought your food out of the supermarket because this is where the the best price was, yeah. and you blah 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 blah. See, it was a. Um, uh, Another thing which we had in those days, and I don't, unfortunately, it's kind of drifted away, is the deposit on bottles. Sodas and so forth are mostly sold in glass bottles. Right. There was very little plastic bottles going around. Right. Plastic bottles didn't show up actually until, oh, I don't know, sometime in the 70s, you see. Mm-hmm. They, so as a result, glass bottles were always being reused to right. refilled by the companies. Coke, Pepsi, right. whoever, and they charged a the deposit on it. The small ones were two cents, the bigger ones were a nickel, you see? And you saved them and you <coughs> took them back. Well, if uh, people throw a glass bottle away and you find it, you can take it down to a store and get your get the deposit on get it. A nickel. <laughs> it was Well, as I say, it was something that, it was kind of like a, a self-cleaning thing. That is to say, kids would go out along the streets there and look for throwing away glass bottles. Right. They'd be literally cleaning up debris, mm-hmm. you see, because they get some money out of them, right. see? Because they just didn't have much money, so they get some. This is free money. Mm-hmm. Find out some uh, with the uh, the glass bottles, see? And of course, the glass being what it was, well, it's, uh, that's. Uh, but again, th- th- today it's all plastic, right. all these containers. In fact, if I asked you to figure out. Uh, I told you I would like to have um, uh, a drink or a juice in a glass container. Where would you go to get it? Hmm. I honestly can't think of. Uh, you know, I mean, there's one thing I know where I would go. See what I mean? Just go into my kitchen and put it in a glass. <laughs> see? Is it? It is a different. Uh,
0: different setting, is, right?
1: Is it a better world or what? Um, you know. Well, Sure it's a better world in some respects, in some ways it is not, you see.
0: Well, Joe, it's really been great for you to come and spend some time with us. I really appreciate this. Well I am glad that hope we didn't bore you to death. You see no, what I mean? no, you can be well entertained. I, <laughs> I enjoy talking about it because
1: it, for me it takes me back to times in my life that for the were for the most part quite pleasant, enjoyable right. and very, you know, very interesting. And right. I, think a lot about them, and I think, what would it be like if this happened today, you right. see? Because, well, that's something we will never know, see? I mean.
0: That's it for this edition of Remember When. If you'd like to make a suggestion or a comment on this program, please use the following contact information. Thanks for watching. Until next time, and always, Remember When.